This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I am Jack Pelzer, joined by Dan. How are you doing, Dan? Jack, I'm good. How are you? Uh, You're way north today, aren't you? Yeah, I've moved from Wyoming to Copper Harbor, Michigan on the Quinoa Peninsula in Lake Superior. It's my uh, first time in the real big lake. It's uh, quite something. It's nice up here. It's spectacular up there. I get up to the Copper Harbor, from Houghton to Copper Harbor, uh, Antonagon. I run that whole uh, western shore of the UP every winter looking out at uh, Lake Superior. It's pretty spectacular out there. Nice. I'll have to come out and do that sometime during the winter. Uh, for now, though, I'm just kind of hanging out on the dock and uh, thinking about this great interview we have today with uh, Bob Greifeld, who is the uh, I'm sure you of are. I'm sure you're sitting up there enjoying <laughs> life, thinking about this interview we did and how excited you are. <laughs> I am. He's the uh, former chairman of NASDAQ. He is the uh, chairman of Virtue Financial. He's a CNBC contributor. He is a man about town. He's so interesting and his background is journalism and he ends up in the financial sector pretty cool story really fun to sit down and chat with and he looks the way he looks at things he 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 knows exactly what traders should be doing to be successful in these markets yeah i think it was a really interesting interview and uh i think we should get to it pretty quick i don't want to press my luck because the internet up here is uh I think it's the first line they used uh, from Stanford on the modem. I think we have the original internet here. <laughs> you probably do. Well, let's dive right into it. All right. Enjoy the Limit Up interview with Bob Greifeld. All right. Hello, everyone. We got a very special interview today because we are joined by the chairman of Virtue Capital and the former chairman and CEO of NASDAQ. Dan, you've heard of that one, right? Yeah, I've heard of it a couple of times. I'm not sure where, but I think I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's our pleasure today to be joined by Bob Greifeld. Bob, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. A little warm here in New Jersey, but it's still beautiful. Yeah, well, I am actually today in Dubois, Wyoming, um, for a very socially distanced wedding of my cousins. So it's actually quite chilly here in the morning. I would say so. Well, it must be beautiful, though. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. I was going to go outside, but the internet wasn't agreeing. But anyway, enough about my wedding schedule. Bob, we're super honored to have you here. And uh, you were on an episode of Limit Up last year. So just for some people that maybe didn't listen to that, maybe we could start by talking a little bit about how you got into the finance and uh, trading world. Yeah, that'd be uh, that's a great question because it's a little unusual because I came to this world from a technology background. So I was a software entrepreneur uh, for 10 years, and we built trading systems for NASDAQ market makers back in the day. And we uh, built that company up over the decade, did quite well, and sold it to SunGuard Data Systems, which is now FIS in 1999. And I stayed in SunGuard for several years and learned a lot. And then NASDAQ came knocking. And NASDAQ at that point was basically a, a surviving, trying to survive the post.com era. They were a money-losing operation. They were part of the regulator and wanted to separate from the regulator and go public themselves. So I led them through that journey. 
That's very interesting. I saw also that you were an English major in college. So you really went the gamut from English to computers to finance. Yes. Yes. That's a, well, I would recommend that background for anybody. I'm not sure it's a guaranteed for success, but certainly I uh, have a great love of the English language and it was a natural calling for me. Uh, you know, but I remember when I was in high school, when we first got dial-up access to the mainframe at the SUNY campus in Stony Brook or Farmingdale. And I was amazed at what you could do back then. So I always had a, you know, strong, uh, you know, liking predilection for the wonders of technology. Great. So 2003, coming to NASDAQ, I was a little young at that time, so I only know the outlines of how that all fell apart. But that must have been an interesting place to be following that collapse for everyone that can look back at the um, internet bubble. Yeah, so NASDAQ was living in the bubble themselves, and they were basically a monopoly in trading of NASDAQ stocks. And the rules had changed such that uh, upstarts could also trade NASDAQ stock, even though the stock itself was listed with the stock market. And that was a good thing for investors and introduced the level of competition. And NASDAQ being part of, you know, monopoly, essentially, regulatory monopoly, was in no shape to compete. And yet employees who were there who had self-selected to be part of a regulator and on a you know, somewhat positive way, I think their systems were built to be battleships and not to respond like a PT boat to competition. They're built to always be there and to be reliable. So you had these upstart competitors in 2003 called ECNs, which had Unix-based systems at the time, where they would make changes to the software every week, responding to customers' desires. And NASDAQ was on basically a once-a-year schedule, right? So when they released the software that year, it worked, right? It was completely battle-tested. The ECNs released the software every week, but if they had a technical problem with the software, they would just be down and the market wouldn't care. But NASDAQ didn't have that luxury. It had to be up, you know, basically 99, you know, five nines, 99.999% of the time. Uh, so it, we had to kind of square that circle. How do you get more nimble without giving up your reliability advantages? Interesting. I, as someone not being familiar completely with the way um, some of these exchanges work, how does a company go about getting listed on the NASDAQ? Well, they have to meet criteria, right? Uh, so we have listing standards, and there's three separate markets. And, you know, the global select is the highest market with the highest level of standards. So the standards, and broadly speaking, around corporate governance, right? You have to have an audit committee. You have to have independent uh, directors. You have to have shown, you know, a, a certain amount of revenue or net worth in a period of time. So we check that, and that's also part of the ongoing standards requirements for uh, the companies. Very cool. Um, so obviously, the last time that you came on the show, it was a very different world in different a lot of worlds. Ways. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, things have completely changed. There's been a lot of comparisons made that are not perfect about kind of what's going on with the NASDAQ and a lot of the equity markets in general, which have been reaching all-time highs pretty much every day. I guess the NASDAQ's down a little bit today as we record this. Do you see any similarities there? Or is it now a more mature market that these you know valuations make more sense well i i would say you certainly see uh similarities with respect to share of mind of the average investor right so back in the dot-com era this is what everybody 
talked about, right? What was going on in the marketplace. And you'd hear it from your local dentist, the gas station uh, attendant. So I think we've seen the biggest share of mind uh, since that time. Uh, but you'd be foolish to compare Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix to any company that existed in that dot-com era, right? These are the largest companies on the planet, right? When you think of Apple being $1.8 trillion in market cap, uh, you know, that's truly phenomenal. It's 36 times the size of a $50 billion market cap company, which is a a very large company. So that's where the comparisons completely uh, break apart. You've got what's leading this rally are these wonderful companies that have truly led the the economy forward. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no comparison to a lot of the companies in the dot-com bubble. They had great ideas, but they were way ahead of uh, the infrastructure that could carry out those um, ideas. So they were really just speculative in that nature versus Apple has the sales to back it up. And is it worth 10% of uh, yearly GDP? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> but they certainly have enough cash and a strong enough balance sheet to uh, not be pets.com. So, uh, Dan, did you want to throw out a question about trading? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to hear a little bit more about what you have with Virtue, because I think that's something a lot of our listeners would be really interested in. So if you could break that down a little bit and give us a little better understanding of what you guys have going on over there. Yeah. So what Virtue does is one, uh, it's classical business. It was a electronic market maker. And that means in any electronic market around the world, 170 different markets, Virtue would be making a two-sided bid and offer meaning we're willing to buy, we're willing to sell on a continuous basis. And there's always a spread between the bid offers. So Virtu, if they buy, would be looking to sell and capture a portion of, of that spread. And that's really a risky endeavor, but it's providing a service to the market because you have liquidity. If a seller wants to sell, the buyer is there. Sell, you know, buyer wants to buy, the seller is there. And that's what Virtu does. And that, you know, as I said, we do it in 170 markets. U.S. equities being the largest, but anywhere there's an electronic market as opposed to a floor-based market, Virtu doesn't really function well in a floor-based market. So that that was our core business. We expanded that business with the acquisition of Knight Capital several years ago. And how that business differed is that Knight was the recipient of large amounts of retail order flow, which I think you're probably particularly interested in. And what Virtu will offer and its competitors is to the retail providers, we'll give you a guaranteed execution at the best possible price. We'll price improve that on average by uh, you know a bit. And uh, that allows you to, if I'm a retail customer, you know if I want to buy Apple uh, and Apple's trading at a hundred bucks, a lot of times I can buy it at 99.98. So, but I know I'm getting the hundred at the very least, always the best price and then the price improvement on, on a regular basis. Now, Virtu then would be on the other side of that trade. So now if the customer is selling, we're buying and we have the inventory. And then our job is to do inventory management on a real-time basis. And we use obviously very sophisticated technology to affect that uh, inventory management uh, decision. So that's pretty incredible. In my background, I started as a, a market maker in the 30-year option pit. Okay. And so I think... A lot of people have this idea when they get into trading is they get this, they see the movies, they see the videos, guys screaming and yelling. 
I'm 50 bid or whatever it is, or the market's five, six or five, eight. And people kind of forget that there has to be a market making in this technology world. How have you seen market making adjust over time with the introduction and the advancement of technology? Tremendously. And what I would say for your retail investors, right, to try to be in that bid offer capture game is, you know, relative silliness uh, because you have Virtu and others who obviously this is their livelihood. They build tremendous analytical capability to know how to do inventory management on a real-time basis. But if you're a retail investor and you have a point of view with respect to Apple, Amazon, uh, Tesla, or others, and you're not just there to capture the spread, but you believe this thing is undervalued, then that's, you know, your opinion's as good as anybody else's with respect to how you want to uh, trade in, in, in the marketplace today. So from the virtue point of view, you, what you saw certainly during the pandemic uh, is the volumes hit such high levels. So at the core of what we do is we have to be incredibly competent in handling the technology requirements of trading in this modern era. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, the ability to handle these massive volumes, handle them quickly, but also reliably. What happens is if you have generally a millisecond to respond to an order, and that's what you do on average, and then based upon, you know, some volatility in the market, it's taking you 100 milliseconds, then you have a problem because the models you have are kind of triggered off of the the one millisecond uh, thought. So that's you know the whole world that we have to live in. We have to do great engineering to make we're sure we're steady. And Virtu did a phenomenal job through the pandemic in with record volume days. You know, being there for customers who wanted to buy or sell and represent the other side of those trades. That's incredible. I think something that you pointed out that I don't think a lot of newer traders getting into this they want to have that scalping mentality. They want to be quick in, quick out, make that money as quickly as possible. When you're talking, you're talking down to the millisecond and no human being can register nearly as fast as a computer can there. And that's why we have to start thinking bigger picture, looking for those bigger moves from that personal day trading mentality as opposed to that quick in and quick out. Yeah. And and it's not, uh, it's a millisecond is slow. Right, so we're quicker than that. But, you know, if you're a retail investor, you know, forget the millisecond game. But if you think, you know, this thing's going to go up in the next five days, you're entitled to that opinion and you could do that. And you're going to be right or wrong. And whether that's investing or, or gambling, that's for, you know, others to decide there. But, uh, you know, it's kind of the way the game is played. Yeah, we tell our traders a lot that it's not a uh, smart game to try and trade like a computer. You kind of have to use your advantages as a human where you can find them. Uh, because even if you could trade that fast, you don't have the inventory. You don't have the extra scale. You don't have the right information to do that effectively. And yeah, I know when I was at the prop trading firm six years ago at this point, that was when it was around a millisecond or two. So I'm sure by now it's... Uh, in the matter of microseconds. You, you're, you couldn't be more right. We're in microseconds. And when you talk about scale, right, if we have a buyer come in, if we have scale, the odds of the seller coming in increases, right? And that's the easiest trade. If you a buyer comes in, you're the seller, uh, then you want to have, you know, you want to inventory management. If the other side comes in five minutes later, 10 minutes later, 
then you're in a better position. You get more of that happening when you do have scale. Do you think that the future of that sort of market making, so for a while throughout my um, whole, I was at prop shops for seven years that were kind of in that arms race and it was all about speed for a long period of time where the improvements were all about, you know, how much you could shave off it. Do you see it continuing down that uh, way with, I don't know, like you know, quantum computing or is it going to be more what kind of smart things you can do with, say, AI or more big data? Or a combination. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, common sense says you reach the limits of speed uh, because we have not yet figured out how to improve the speed of light. Right. So we we have we have a hard limit there. Right. We have. the. <laughs> so if somebody figures out how to go faster than the speed of light, then they'll have clearly advantage. So the, the, the speed issue becomes less important over time. And the the intelligence, the inventory management uh you know, it will predominate in, in the years to come. Now, you mentioned quantum computing, which we haven't yet seen the applicability to this environment. But if you have a new paradigm shift in how computing is can be done, then it's a new game. And that game is probably still not so much about speed, but again, writing the better code, taking advantage of what the, the hardware processes can can do for you. Yeah, from what I've heard from some of the interviews or people who talk about some of the places like, uh, you know, Renaissance, for instance, there seems to be a big premium on what they're doing with uh, the engineering of their systems and the amount of data that they have to make decisions in a split second. So that's very cool stuff. Yeah, I, I would say data will be a more of a focus in the years to come than speed, right? There's limitations to speed. We're very fast right now. You cannot make the advancements you have in, in the past because uh, of the theoretical limit. But data is certainly a great opportunity to learn from. As we move forward, where do you see the space for the just the average, the average trader, uh, that human discretion? Where do you see them fitting into this whole growth of the markets that we have going forward? Well, so, you know, I've seen so much change, right? So I, I've been involved with traders for a very long period of time. So now when you think about a trader today in a professional context, right, there's such a strong technology aspect to them. And obviously then you have the algo development, uh, which it's important to recognize that these things are not static. Right? You can't come up with an algo that then works forever because the nature of the market, the nature of the order flow is under constant involvement. So this is a constant evolution that you have to go through. So there's no right answer. What it was, you know, a trading strategy that worked six months ago, you know, doesn't necessarily work tomorrow. So tying back to the, uh, the data piece, right, it's a question of what signals does the data give you? And these signals have to be worked at and rethought, you know, basically on, on, on a daily basis. So I think, you know, the attention to data, the attention to the signals you get from the data and then having the technology chops to then respond to that is what you look forward to. So that's an entirely different world today than the world that existed in the past. So I, I think what you're going to see is more a refinement of the model today, more data and analytics than and speed and access be you know some of the dominant forces going forward. Yeah, that adaptability is key. And the movie image of the trader, that person 
is gone in the electronic markets. In the over-the-counter, more bespoke markets, you probably still have some old-school traders who, one, have either a balance sheet uh, advantage, an informational advantage that can use that and then be kind of the uh, the master of that universe. But, uh, you know, it's not the world we live in in electronic markets. Yeah, we always say that the uh, easiest year to trade was your first year, and then you just got to figure it out <laughs> from there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the top people are always changing that. Uh, you talked earlier about sort of, you know, the blurred line or philosophical thing between what becomes trading and gambling. Uh, because we talk about some retail order flow things, you know, obviously a big story is everything that's going on with Robinhood especially the ability to trade options on Robinhood. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that or kind of um, where you see that sort of going in the near future. Well, you know, I, I don't know because, you know, one, obviously uh, sports betting is uh, important to a segment of the population. And they discovered in the absence of sports that you have uh, frictionless possibilities in the equity world today so we you know we had the pen we went to zero commission we had the pandemic happen and they kind of happened together attracting a new class uh or type of investor and you know when you look at the friction cost in uh draft kings or fan duels you say wow the equity markets actually have le- less friction so I, I think we've seen somewhat of a structural change because it is incredibly uh, efficient to trade in the markets today. You can sit there and not pay, you know, an explicit commission uh, for these trades. That's pretty cool. So, you know, you're taking some intellectual firepower and putting it in, into the marketplace. And I think in the UK, you know, they call it punting, right? So there's more punters coming in into the marketplace. And I think, you know, we'll we'll see how that plays out over time. But it certainly feels like a structural change. Yeah. I have my thoughts. Do you, do you think that there seems to be this news narrative that I'm a little bit iffy on of that all these uh, new Robinhood type retail traders are somehow influencing moving this market higher? That always seems a little bit of a questionable proposition to me. Yeah. So, I, you know, I would say that I would be up in the last week or two, I would have been a firm no, it doesn't happen, right? The conventional wisdom is entirely that the real money, the institutional money moves the uh, the market and is the price setter for the market. So the market makers, the retail traders are flitting around that. And certainly they have influence, but they're really the bulk of the influence is at the institutional level. So I still believe that, uh, but you'd have to say that on a more thinly traded stock, you know, the retail investor has a greater chance of being a uh, a price setter. So I'm sure there's situations, uh, not so much in Apple, uh, where the retail investor is is setting, uh, you know, more the price, leading more the price discovery than we might before have imagined. Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a big influx of younger demographics coming into this, especially when we lost all that sport betting. Do you think there, we had enough time to hold that younger demographics within the equity market within the the trading world, or do you think we'll lose them pretty quickly as sports come back? Well, I, I think we're going to keep a, a fair percentage of them because, you know, for the intelligent people, uh, it is, you know, still primarily investing because you still own an asset, right? Say, uh, say you, you believe the stock is going to go higher and it doesn't go higher in the, the week that you think it will, but you still own a share, you know, a piece of equity of that company, which is 
fundamentally different than a sports bet and to me better. So you have, even for the most diehard trader, you still have a fundamental aspect to that decision where you're an owner of the equity there. So when I think about that as compared to, okay, which way did the game uh, come out? I think it's more intellectually interesting and it's, uh, you know, some great opportunities. So, yeah, I, I think there's a structural change, you know, Obviously, I'm a believer in the equity markets, fell in love with the equity markets. To me, there's nothing more exciting to it. And I am a sports fan. I'm a Jets fan, so that's been difficult. And oh, a wow. Knicks fan. <laughs> We're Bears <laughs> fans over here, so it's not much easier. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's not like I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a real sports fan. Uh, but intellectually, the stock market is a lot more interesting I mean, to me. Right. I think, and I also think there's more odds in your favor. I mean, like you said, if you put a thousand dollars down on the Jets to win the game next week or the first game of the year, you have better chance of buying a couple of shares of Apple and making yes. your money and still walking away with some money. Whereas opposed uh, exactly. to you put a thousand on the Jets, you're going to come back with zero. Yeah. Yep. No doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, just for my own personal interest, Bob, I know that I've, I've seen you a couple times on uh, CNBC, right? You've yes. got a contributor over there. Yes, I uh, have been. Just for the people out there, uh, what's that like going into the studio? I mean, now if it's during the pandemic, you probably just do it from you know home like everyone else. But uh, yeah. Do you get the full treatment there? You got to go and uh, get the makeup put on, the whole deal? You do. You do. And when I'm in Florida, I go to a local studio or obviously I have great pleasure going back to NASDAQ. So you do the whole makeup bit. And it's interesting because this TV studio, it's a pure adrenaline rush. You got to be hyper. You got to be in short sentences. And I have to feel like I'm shouting, right? And I come across normal when I see the play on TV. So the, the podcast world is more equivalent to the radio world. When you go into a radio studio, it's soothing, it's relaxing. You have a different uh, sense of uh, alpha waves happening uh, here. Uh, so it's night and day. So obviously this environment is relaxing. You're able to give more thoughtful answers. You got to be sound bitey as hell and loud on, <laughs> on, on television, right? Yeah, as someone that was walking around the Chicago Board of Trade for a long time, uh, seeing uh, Rick Santelli, uh, he is like that in real life. He is a uh, very energetic uh, guy. <laughs> so yeah, and that, that that plays on television, right? It wouldn't play in a podcast. You'd say, will you calm down, right? But yeah, the, the television camera sucks the energy out of you uh, there. So, you know, that's the, the life we live. I've also found all the TV studios that I've gone into when you're getting ready, it's freezing cold. There's It's rush, rush, rush. And uh, the makeup is so caked on, your eyes are swollen. Well, I think they're better with the makeup now. I'll tell you one quick story. My second TV interview, this is back in 2003, and I was not experienced back then. And I was wearing contacts. And they used spray makeup, which is the one and only time somebody's done that. And it got behind my contact. And I couldn't see a, a damn thing. So I knew the announcer was talking. I'm trying to jab my eye to see. And, then, you know, I'm inexperienced and nervous as hell. So that that will be the most <laughs> memorable TV interview ever, being <laughs> blind, uh, that, that kind of thing. And that's actually when I switched back to glasses, right? I said, okay, I can't do that again. And uh, I never went back to contacts. Uh, oh, that's amazing. So we'll see. But the last time I was on, uh, I had to pitch my book, which is, seems a relic now. The last time I was on, I you know, the book was out, which has an English major had a great time writing, and it really recounts from 2003 
forward in the NASDAQ experience. So, you know, it's a, for your audience who may or may not be interested, it's a, you know, it's not, I, I wouldn't call it, it's a general purpose business book, but makes a lot more sense for those people who care about uh, markets. I mean, it has a great rating on Amazon, so maybe they would be. Uh, for the yes. record, it's a market <laughs> mover, lessons from a decade of change at NASDAQ. Yes. A shameless pitch of the book. <laughs> the way this business that's business works. <laughs> but I think people would be interested because uh, there is so much interest. I know the most popular product, our traders are trading mostly ES and NQ futures. Uh, there is, you know, people love the NASDAQ. It's, it's sort of like the sexiest index in a lot of ways. Well, it certainly has been. And, you know, I, I know when I was there, we had to kind of reset the uh, weightings because the companies were getting to be too much of the index. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if they reset it again, but it was certainly weighted. But it was interesting when I came, first came to NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100 was seen as the Microsoft Intel index right now because they were the big weighting. So, you know, time has a way of moving forward and changing things. So speaking of time, when we look back on the recovery NASDAQ had after the bubble burst to this strange period we're in, have you seen many similarities? I think the recovery obviously was much quicker and the, the break wasn't, it was a little bit different, but what are some of the similarities you've seen? No, there's nothing like this pandemic induced market right now. So, you know, it was a hundred years ago, we had the last pandemic. So, you know, back in 2008 and 2009, it seems quaint now, right? Because we were wringing our hands with respect to the amount of government intervention in the market, and there were active discussions about the moral hazard. And the Fed, you know, uh, and the Treasury took certain actions, and they fell short of wanting to extend that to Lehman. Uh, now we fast forward here. There's no talk of moral hazards, and the Fed is backstopping basically every market, and it's made a big. Uh, uh, difference there. So truly forgetting the health issues of the pandemic, it's been truly historic, the amount of government intervention in the markets. When you hear the Fed is going to be buying you know, ETFs, it's kind of eye-opening. So if I was trying to be a wise guy, I'd say, you know, in a pandemic, there, you know, there's no capitalist left, just like in a foxhole, there are no atheists. There's no capitalist here, right? Because, you know, even the you know, the uh, package, this further support, you figure the government has now provided, you know, $6 trillion plus support to the U.S. economy, a money that they don't have. And now de debating where you've got one side wants $3 trillion more and the other side wants $1 trillion more. Again, money that we don't have. So in a real sense, we're living in the era of MMT, you know, modern monetary theory or magic money tree, depending upon your point of view. There, So we've never seen anything like this. I think the stimulus package that Barack passed after the you know, uh, crisis was like $800 billion, which is unfathomable. And now, you know, the starting marker is, you know, we're at $7 trillion. Small potatoes. Yeah, kind of. I'll tell you what, the hand-wringing is coming <laughs> because yeah, yeah. The, it's very much being set up depending on what the results of the election are. I think suddenly uh, some people will start caring about debt again. <laughs> well, you, you, well, that that's the big unknown, right? You kind, you kind of have to believe that the debt doesn't matter, or a la in MMT, or because if it does, we're, we're going to have a strong reckoning. Because at twenty trillion dollars of debt, 
you know, when are we paying that back? I don't see that happening soon. You guys might be different. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. see it happen very soon either. <laughs> Not so sure about that. Yeah. Uh, but on a more positive note, uh, Bob, if people want to find out more about Virtue or, you know, go to your Twitter, uh, where can they find you at? Me? I'm not sure. I got. I have a Twitter. <laughs> sure. I try to be uh, exclusive, right? Not reclusive, but exclusive, right? So we'll see. I set up a Twitter handle a long time ago, but I don't use it. So you're saying I should? Uh, you know, see, I feel like such a jerk. I set up a Twitter uh, like six, seven years ago. I used to be um, a contributor for The Onion. And so I thought I had to have it as part of a professional thing. But now it's been six years since I tweeted. And I, I feel like such a, you know, such a yeah. dork. So I, yeah, I have, an, I have an email address. Is that cool? <laughs> it's super cool. I'm not sure you want to give that out. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I'll get you something. But I don't care. People can send me an email. I do have a spam filter. So. All right. Well, what's your email then? <laughs> what's that? I mean, it's a, I, I, I'll, I'll give you one. I have a, a number of ones, but obviously, so I've got, uh, you know, I started a uh, private equity firm. And, you know, that's the vehicle that invested in virtue. So I'm the chairman who also represent about 20% of the equity there. And uh, email handle there, let me get is bob at cornerstoneinvestmentcapital.com. Very cool. Hopefully it's a good <laughs> spam filter. And... Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, la- and lastly, I see, I saw that you're the uh, founder and chairman of the U.S. Track and Field Foundation, which... Uh, yes, my- yeah. Go ahead. So my brother is a uh, high school track coach in um, East Garfield Park in Chicago. So that was super interesting. And since I'm on vacation, you know, with the family as well, my mom made a special point that I mentioned that program of yours because it sounds great. It is great. So what we've done, what we've accomplished, I founded it probably, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, uh, years ago. So if you graduate in the U.S., U.S. citizen, and you're ranked in the top 10 in the U.S., we will support you uh, beyond your baseline, you know, income that you have uh, through the next Olympic cycle, and it's made a real difference to the sport. So, track is one of these minor Olympic sports where you have these great stars and phenomenal athletes, uh, beyond comprehension how athletic they are, who really don't have a way to get along. So, we're there to help myself and a number of you know people who have a real great passion for the. Uh, the sport and Steve uh, Schwartzman from Blackstone has been a uh, big benefactor for us. So we've made a big difference. And then we also support inner city youth, which was how I started it because, you know, the theory of the case was that track is teaching you delayed gratification. And I, I used to play basketball and play track and it was a lot more fun to play basketball than have the track coach uh, say, why don't you run 10 quarters, right? And take a 60 second break. So you do that for 10 years, you've learned delayed gratification, which is one of the really necessary skills in in life. Uh, So, you know, we focus on youth athletics and then the elite athletics that we support, we require them to give back to the community and, you know, help with some of these, you know, be role models for these inner city kids. So it's been a great pleasure for me. Uh, I think I would have been at the Olympics uh, if we had normal times here. So it was an exciting year for me because we had the trials which we do out in Oregon and then we had the Olympics in Tokyo which is a you know as a great and safe city to visit but um, that didn't happen 
<laughs> well, we got maybe next year. Delayed gratification, Bob. We got to wait till 2021. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great comeback. That's a great so on comeback. that, that's a great program. Um, and Bob, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. I had a great time. It's my pleasure. My my pleasure. Yes, thank you very much. If you're listening, go out and get Bob's book off of Amazon. I'm going to do it as well. All right, good. Enjoy Wyoming. Enjoy Chicago. Absolutely. Thank you. Try it to the best. All right, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later, Bob. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And we'll talk to everyone else right after this break. Hey, everybody. Thank you for making it to the very end of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. Be sure to uh, subscribe and what do you do with podcasts? Do you like them? Do you rate them? You rate them. Be sure to subscribe and rate. Yeah, and if you give us some, uh, if you comment on them, the the feedback, that's always helpful too. Yeah, and if you comment, you know, don't be a, uh, I, I don't want to say a-hole. I can say a-hole. Don't be an a-hole. And um, we'll, be, we'll be nice to you back. So if you can do that, it would be a big help. Otherwise, uh, check out our blog, check out our social media presence, or just come back next week uh, for a brand new episode with a brand new guest. In the meantime, it's almost the weekend, right, Dan? Absolutely. And one more thing to add in there. Go check out our YouTube page, Jack and myself. Uh, We've got a new video series we're doing. We're sitting down with uh, Michael Patak every week, and we're talking about the three major indices, Dow, NASDAQ, and uh, S&P 500. It's pretty fun. Um, and, uh, I think it's a pretty good, uh, conversation we got going on. So check that one out too. And, uh, we're on to the weekend now. Yeah. It's actionable. People like that. We actually talk about the levels we're looking at. So, you know, some good stuff in there, but, uh, as we head off into the weekend, I'll be driving quite a bit. Um, hope everyone out there is doing something fun. Dan, I got a normal weekend, uh, for the summer. I'll be actually, I'm going to a different lake this weekend. I'm going out to Michigan, I'm going to Pawpaw Lake. And uh, I'll be on that lake doing what I do every weekend on this lake. Dan, I can't believe we just arrived at this right now. I, too, will be at Pawpaw Lake this weekend. Will you really? Yeah, I'm driving from Copper Harbor to my friend's uh, house on Pawpaw. Well, I'll be on Pawpaw, too. We'll have to uh, meet up for a beer. <laughs> yeah, we'll have, we'll have to uh, plan this offline. That's the magic of podcast, people. So we figured out what our weekend's going to be. Uh, for everyone out there, hope you're doing something cool as well. Namaste and trade well. The Limit Up Podcast is produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.